Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Anne Barest's extraordinary novel, The Postcard, beautifully translated from the French by Tina Cover, the mother of the Barest family receives a postcard in the mail. On it is inscribed a written list of the names of each of her relatives who were murdered in the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. With no return address and written in an unfamiliar hand, the meaning of the card is nebulous, perhaps a warning, or something like a ghost reaching out from the past. This message becomes the catalyst for storytelling, for a conversation between Anne and her mother, and to introducing her daughter to the lives and histories of the Rabinovich branch on the family tree that was nearly cut off entirely. We learn of Ephraim, a genius inventor, and his devoted wife, Emma, and their children Miriam, brilliant at school, married to a rebellious child of artists, Noemi, a writer who lives only long enough to understand all that she might have had in life, and their brother Jacques, the youngest who will die in Auschwitz just before Noemi and his parents. Moving back and forth in time between the 1930s and 40s in Europe and Palestine and modern-day France, the postcard is a novelist's novel full of richly drawn characters, drawing upon a deep well of historical presence that paints a vivid picture of monumental violence and the everyday traumas of xenophobia and anti-Semitism. Part detective story, part family history, the postcard asks difficult questions about our present moment, even as it explores partial and lost histories from the not-so-distant past. It is a lasting reminder that the inscription instinct to scapegoat minority populations is a universal, and that even so-called enlightened nations of the 21st century are still making and remaking the grotesque errors of the past. The true history of the Rabinoviches is braided into what Amberest calls her vrai roman, a true novel, and the result is a fiction that enlivens history that makes us feel a connection to a particular family while being aware of the multitudes whose lives were lost or destroyed by the fascist nationalisms of the 20th century. Anne Barest is the best-selling co-author of How to Be Parisian Wherever You Are, and she is the author of a novel based on the life of French writer Françoise Sagan. With her sister Claire, she is also the author of Gabrielle, a critically acclaimed biography of her great-grandmother, Gabrielle Bouffet-Picabia, Marcel Duchamp's lover and muse. For her work as a writer and prize-winning showrunner, she has been profiled in publications such as French Vogue and the Haaretz newspaper. The recipient of numerous literary awards, the postcard was a finalist for the Goncourt Prize, winner of the American Choix Goncourt, and it has been a long-selling bestseller in France. Tina Cover is the translator of more than a dozen works of fiction and nonfiction, 
including Alexander Dumas' Georges and Anna Gavalda's Life, Only Better. Her translations have twice been nominated for the Impact Dublin International Literary Award, and she was the recipient in 2009 of a Literary Translation Fellowship from the U.S. National Endowment for the Arts. She is the co-founder of Translators Allowed, a YouTube channel that spotlight, spotlights translators reading from their own work. She lives in the northeast of England. Welcome to the show, Anne and Tina. Thank you, Chris, for this presentation. Thanks very much. Anne, in your acknowledgments, you say that this novel would not have existed without your mother's research and your mother's writing. You say that without her, there would be no novel. Could you talk about your mother's research into your family members that died in Auschwitz and your own research and how the two joined to become this work of fiction? Yes, of course. But at first, I apologize to the listeners for my French accent. <laughs> Please don't apologize. And... Uh, so indeed, uh, this book owes a lot to my mother. That's why I wanted her to be the main character of the book. My, my mother started researching her family in the 90s, and I will explain why. Uh, it's because um, one day at school, my teacher asked me and the other children to create their family tree at home. And it was at that moment that my mother realized that she couldn't help me because she didn't know the names of her grandparents, of her uncle, of her aunt. And she, she didn't even know which country they were born in. And she told me after a lot of years at, uh, uh, later that on that day, she felt a sense of shame. And so why, why was she unable to help me? This was because her, our mother never, never talked about it. And you, you should uh, imagine that in France, after the war, Jews were still afraid. They were afraid that the denunciations would start again, afraid that the arrests would start again. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you have to imagine that the neighbors who had given your name to the police were still your neighbors. Hmm. So Jews in France uh, talked very little about the war. And th there, were, there was also the suffering, the suffering of being the, the only, the, the sole survivor. So... That's, that's why my mother conducted research for 15 years uh, after, uh, when, after, the, after the death of my grandmother. And she went to the National Departmental Archives and to the police archives. And so then she, she taught me the art of conducting uh, research which is a very uh, challenging discipline. You need to be patient. You need to have intu in, intuitions, intuitions, and you 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 need you have to be you need to be willing to search in places where uh, your intuition wouldn't have led you. And so my job uh, has been to complete her research. Uh, thanks to her teaching. Mm, what a beautiful gift to have the gift of, of research and, and to be able to draw history out. I think that's a wonderful gift from your mother. Yes. Um, the cover of the postcard is such a hauntingly beautiful picture of your relative and character in the novel, Noemi Rabinovich. Why did you want to have this historical document be the face that we see when we think about Noemi in the novel? Uh, in fact, um, 
I, I didn't choose it. At first, I wanted the postcard to be on the cover. Hmm. But um, the publishing house uh, uh, suggested using the photograph of Noemi. And then uh, I remembered a, a psychic uh, a few months prior had told me that she saw Noemi's face reproduced hundreds of times. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. And so I remembered and I said to the publisher, yes, that's, that's fine. And uh, I'm, I'm happy because it's, it's a beautiful cover. And um, I think that uh, Americans make much more amazing covers than us French. Well, the French, the French tend to admire uh, a very stark cover, a very plain um, yeah. cover, uh, which I, I like as well. But I do agree. In this case, I love this. I love this cover. I wonder, Tina, what you think of the of the cover? Oh, I love the cover. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, first of all, it is it's just it's simply beautiful. Um, Noemi is is so beautiful and it's such a striking image and um you know she also has kind of this this enigmatic half smile on her face and you kind of want to know more right away so the, it you know it does what a book cover is meant to do and it it sort of draws you in but i think also to me you know the fact that that this face noemi's face has is becoming so recognizable and known by so many. It's very um it's very meaningful and very profound because really this is the opposite of what Nazi Germany was trying to do, obliterate mm. people from from existence and from consciousness and from memory. And now thousands if not millions of people know know Nami's name and know her face and you know, it's just it's I think it's beautifully symbolic that way. Yes. I, oh, I agree so much. And that's so, um, so beautifully said. It was that project of trying to trying to extinguish histories and faces and memories. And this this novel certainly acts as a as a contradiction to everything that the Nazi ideology wished for. And I wanted to ask about the the genre of the of the novel. You called it in an interview on Vrai Roman, a true novel. And I would say that there's a lot of fiction today that is part of this loose category. I don't know, even know if I want to call it a genre of autofiction. And it's a genre that lives somewhere between memoir and fiction. But those novels are rarely engaged in the kind of archival work and the kind of historical fiction that you're doing in the postcard. So can you talk a little bit about what you think a vrai roman is and whether you think it's different from what autofiction is? Yes. So I, I believe now we are uh, experiencing a period of genre blurring in literature. Uh, just like in society, uh, literary genres genre are becoming uh, fluid. Uh. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, moment for us uh, writers and, uh, and readers I, I, I don't know, Tina, if, if you agree with me. Oh, I think definitely. Um, you know, one of the things that um, that's so striking about um, about the postcard is that it, it um, not only does it blur the line between sort of truth and fiction, but it, you know, it, it contains several genres just within itself. I mean, um it's also uh, not just a family saga, but it's but it's a mystery, and you know, it's a very personal journey of self discovery. And I mean, I think in a way, it, it's you know, it's not a surprise that that this sort of genre blurring is happening in the media at the moment. You know, particularly since we're exposed to so many new new media platforms all the time. Um, I think I, you know, everything's moving very quickly. And um, I think people, uh, for lack of a better word, I think maybe sometimes people get bored more easily these days. And I think this kind of, you know, multifaceted way of storytelling, um, you know, is just a way 
keep people's interest. I mean, I think the postcard is a beautiful example of how you can sort of three or four genres of, of fiction, let's say, you know, between two book covers and it, it works, it all works beautifully. I mean, I don't think anybody questions the fact that all these different qualities can coexist. Yeah, it's just seamlessly done. Yes. And so to 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 talk about my novel and to describe it, so I often say that it's a true novel, meaning that the events are true. The facts are true. The postcard uh, arrived uh, in our letterbox in 2003. Um, It was exactly as I described it. Um, My investigation with my mother is exactly as I described it in the book. So, uh, but I, I write it in a novelistic way uh, to uh, captivate the readers and to take them along with me. I I change um, some elements of the account. For example, I changed the timeline because uh, in the the book, the investigation uh, uh, take me um, four months, but in the reality, the investigation took me uh, four years. Uh, but if I had wrote the four years, it would have been very boring. Of the <laughs> and, and the book uh, would have had something like, uh, I don't know, 1,000 pages. So uh, that's why I say it's uh, a novel, but a true novel because... I didn't imagine. Uh, I didn't imagine the the facts for because I don't have uh, I don't have the imagination for that uh, as a writer. For example, I so I met um, this uh, graphologist who uh, called uh, Jesus, but in real life, I I couldn't have imagined a graphologist named called Jesus. <laughs> That's why I say it's a true novel, because it's a mix between true facts, true events, and my my art as a writer to to describe these scenes. The postcard moves backwards and forwards in time from the stories of the Rabinovich family to the present day in France with the appearance of the postcard. It spoils nothing to say that Noemi, Jacques, Emma, and Ephraim all die in Auschwitz. However, the formal separation between their death and the story of the present in the Berest home is startling. We grow to know and love the family, and their death comes with a terrible suddenness. Even the last pages of their lives are abbreviated, bounded by an ocean of white space on the page. What drew you to this kind of formal representation of their deaths in these very abbreviated uh, pages with a lot of blank white space? Oh, yes, because um, I didn't know how to to resolve this difficulty as a writer, how to express, how to write, how to write what cannot be be described and how to express the unspeakable. Um, I, I, I I thought I didn't know I didn't know how to do that, and this, that's why at the end I I worked on the blank page because it 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 was the way I found to express that it's it's unspeakable. A page that doesn't have any numbers, uh, I uh, because I wanted it to be different uh, as the others. Mm. It's very, it's it's very affecting the way that it exists on the page. I found myself very overcome when I when I reached it, and it's it's partly because you are as a reader, you're saying goodbye to them. You've had this period of time in which you've gotten to know this family and the 
you have to say goodbye to them in the story, yes. even though there's a lot of the novel left. Yes. Um, Tina, you have uh, uh, kindly agreed to read these short sections and in particular the endings of the lives of Jacques and Noemi, both in French and then followed by English. Um, would you be willing to do that? Sure, absolutely. It's very emotional for me too, actually. I, you know, as I said, I kind of, I tend to kind of get inside the the the, the moments um, the emotional moments that I translate. And this one, it's really unparalleled, I think. Really, it's a gut punch. Yeah, um, I agree. When, yeah, it's just, it's so stark and uh, so powerful. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. So I think maybe if if it's okay, I, I'll read uh, the page for Jacques first with with the French and then the English and then maybe Noemi after that. That's perfect. Yeah, okay. thank you. Je vois le visage de Jacques, sa tête brune d'enfant, posée contre le sol de la chambre à gaz. Je pose mes mains sur ses yeux grands ouverts pour les fermer dans cette page. I can see Jacques' face, his ruffled boyish brown hair, on the floor of the gas chamber. On this page, I gently close his wide-open eyes. Noemi meurt du typhus, quelques semaines après son arrivée à Auschwitz, comme Irène Nemirovsky. L'histoire ne dit pas si elles se sont rencontrées. Noemi died of typhus a few weeks after arriving at Auschwitz, just like Irène Nemirovsky. History does not record whether they ever met. Thank you so much. It's it's quite emotional even listening to it now, even knowing um, what's to come. And I appreciate so much hearing it in in the original as well as the English. Interested in the you know in the end of Noemi's life, there is the the re-mention of Irene Nimirovsky, and a historical writer who also died in, in Auschwitz. And, and Anne, you write, history does not record whether they ever met. So here is a moment in the novel in which fiction is coming in to make a connection that may never have been made. Um, but could you talk about why Nimirovsky is an important figure for you in this moment in the novel? Uh, when, I, when I was writing the uh, book, uh, I had to to read a lot of of works, a lot of novels, a lot of books, a lot of historian books about the war. And so um, I can't say that I discovered Irene Demirovsky. I had read the, uh, her books um, before, but I reread it, and I don't know why I had the sensation that. Uh, she helped me, and so I wanted uh, her to be uh, inside the book when I discovered that in uh, the Camp de Pithiviers, so in a transit camp in France, the, the transit camp where these camps, uh, where the Jews uh, had to wait before um, to, um, to go to the trains, and so I discovered that Noemi was uh, in the same camp, in the same um, uh, house uh, as Irene Mirovsky. And so that struck me because uh, she was there. Uh, she arrives, Noemi arrives in, uh, in the Pithiviers when Irene Mirovsky, exactly the same day when Irene Mirovsky had to, to leave the camp to go to Auschwitz. So that struck me. And um, so I, I, I wanted to have the, the existence of Irene Mirovsky in the book. And also because Noemi wanted to become a writer. And so uh, I, I thought in myself that maybe Noemi had... Uh, uh, read the books of Irene Mirovsky, and maybe she, maybe she wanted to meet her before the war. 
And so that's 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 the way it, it comes. Part part of the terrible pain and sadness of the novel comes from the irony that the Rabinovich family has had reached the promised land. Ephraim had followed his parents-in-law to Palestine, where they had immigrated to, sensing preternaturally that anti-Semitism was building to a terrible climax in Europe. Ephraim ultimately brings his family back to Europe just at the moment of the Reichstag fire. Can you talk about the impact of this horrible irony in the fiction and in your understanding of your own family um, and the fate that becomes them? Yes, because... I come from a family that didn't want to escape, that didn't seek to flee to the United States or elsewhere. And so that's, for me, it was like, a, I don't know how to express it, like a burden, a, a burden mm -hmm. to, 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 to think that my ancestors wanted to, to stay in France. And I, because they, they, they were smart, they were, um, intelligent people, and so I wanted to understand why they didn't um, uh, see the signals, and uh, and so I want because they they wanted to stay in France because they loved the France, hmm. and above all because they had trust in this country, and it was important for me to understand that that uh, I needed to understand that why they hadn't left and why they hadn't avoided the danger and why uh, they had gone to register with the police. It, it was an obsession for me. Hmm. Uh, so uh, because I, I wanted to understand exactly day by day how things had unfolded. Um, Yes, it was an obsession. Hmm. And it's uh, part of that terrible irony is that Ephraim wants so much for them as a family to be uh, to be French as much as yeah. they can, yeah. uh, and that he's willing to to give everything to be French, and it doesn't save him anyway. No, and. Um... <laughs> No, <laughs> um, and um, it's uh, it's important for us uh, in France to um, tell and and tell again and again that uh, the French government uh, had uh, a responsibility uh, into uh, the deportation because. Um, uh, a lot of uh, deniers now in France try to say that uh, uh, French government was not uh, guilty and they try to say that uh, 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 no French policemen try to uh, arrest, arrest um, uh, Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish people. And so... Um, that's uh, ambiguity uh, of uh, of my country, but uh, we also have to uh, understand that it, France was in Europe uh, considered as a paradise uh, for Jews mm. for the war, because um, you know there was a, a, a Yiddish proverb. Uh, which said happy as a Jew in France huh. because uh, after the French Revolution, uh, the France was the only country in Europe uh, who had um, a good laws uh, for the Jews and where Jews were considered uh, equal with other citizens. So that's why a lot of Jews and Ephraim, so in the book, wanted to uh, become uh, French because they thought that it will uh, save them. 
and the the drama of part of the drama of the novel is moving back and forth between the modern era and the past and seeing all this anti-Semitism creep into modern day French life. And in particular, Anne's daughter hearing from a schoolmate that they don't like Jews very much. And that kind of terrible mirroring of the beginning bubbling up of xenophobia and hatred before Hitler comes to power. How did you want to deal with contemporary anti-Semitism? And what are the difficulties and dangers of trying to understand the historical moments that you look at as sharing a great deal in common? What I, I can say is that the, the, the book changed something inside me. And because a, a book has to change you when you are a writer, if you are the same person before and after uh, writing the book, it means that you, you didn't work enough. And the book changed me. I'm, I will say I'm, I'm less optimistic <laughs> or I could say I'm pessimist about um, this question. Um, I'm not an historian, but I can say that if you see the history, each time you have economical crisis or financial, yes, economical crisis, you can observe that racism uh, uh, raise and anti-Semitism is a, a part of racism. I'm not really optimistic about our moment and about years uh, in front of us. Yes, and we're seeing it um, just the same in the United States that during, especially during COVID and the financial stresses of that moment, anti-Semitism absolutely ballooned up again in extraordinary and overt ways. It's, all, it's always there, but it became much, much more pronounced. And I think you're, you're very right. And I think historians would agree that at the moment you have those kinds of economic stresses and pressures and different kinds of cultural traumas, there's always the lookout for a scapegoat. And, and the Jewish people have been that scapegoat so, so many times, and it seems too easy to just return to them. Tina, I wanted to ask, in because I'm, I'm very interested in, in what Anne said about being transformed in the process of writing, and I wonder if translating a book like this gave you a different perspective on this historical moment, both in the present and past, and whether that process changed something about how you view our present moment? Yes. I mean, yes is the short answer. Absolutely. Um, you know, as I said, I, I tend to involve myself so deeply with the books I translate that I, you know, I feel all the emotion that, that goes along with with that. And with every book I translate, and I will say this one in particular, I also tend to learn quite a bit. And I will say, putting my my hand up in shame as somebody who grew up in the American educational system, you know, there was a, so much I didn't know before. I mean, obviously, I knew about the French resistance. And obviously, I knew about the occupation of, of France during the war. But I really didn't know to what extent the French government was complicit in the deportations. I didn't know places like Pitivier existed. And I didn't know really that the anti-Semitic anti climate in France was so was so bad currently. I, I you know these aren't sort of the kinds of things that you see in the in the global media. So I I you know I learned a lot and and there was a lot that was incredibly obviously incredibly um, impressive and heartwarming. And I mean, just, you know, the, the, the work of the resistance, I mean, just, you know, no matter how brave you think those people were, they were braver. Um, but uh, also, you know, there, there was definitely a sense of disillusionment, you know, that came with, with what I learned. And at a time when I think a lot of us are already 
feeling pretty awful about the state of world politics and Western democracy and, you know, this sort of regression that seems to be happening socially and politically in so many Western countries. I would I would tend to agree with Anne and say that that translating this book um, and inhabiting this book, you know, didn't really make me any more optimistic that that things will change or even that we've made much real progress mm-hmm. at all. That's so, uh, that's very depressing, um, but also I'm I... sorry. I know. Even no, as no. I was saying it, I was like, oh, Lord, this is really depressing. <laughs> no, but I think it's it's important to understand that. And and that's, I think, one of the lessons of the books uh, uh, is is trying to come to an understanding of, of times when you should be pessimistic. Well, but also angry. And I think um, anybody who reads the book... Um, you know, um, even people who were plenty angry before, anybody who reads the book and comes to love the family and be so devastated and so outraged by the senselessness and brutality of what happened to them should close the, the you know, the back cover of this book with an absolute fiery determination to prevent anything like this from ever happening again. And I do believe that is going to be part of its impact and part of its legacy. One of the most uh, important and powerful things about the novel is its concern with the banality of evil, a term coined by Hannah Arendt during the Nuremberg trials. There is real violence and evil that happens in the postcard, but much of it is off screen until we get to the camps. What you dramatize, Anne, is indifference to evil that allows that violence to happen on a mass scale. What is the novel's relationship to the banality of evil? Uh, yes, it, it, indeed, uh, in her work, uh, Eichmann in uh, Jerusalem, Anna Arendt defines the fundamental idea of the banality of evil, according to which the barbaric acts during the Holocaust were committed by seemingly ordinary people who obeyed bureaucratic orders without questioning their moral implications. And that's a a very, very important idea. But in my book, I explore another point, uh, another perspective, um, not from the perspective of the perpetrators of barbarity, but from the standpoint of citizens, neighbors, individuals who understand that something serious is happening, but they do not seek to delve deeper or to fully comprehend what exactly is taking place within their own uh, territory. So this is a question of indifference. But I want to say that this is a question that I ask myself. Hmm. I portray those who were indifferent during the war, but I also wonder about what today I uh, am I indifferent too, because I, it's too easy to only judge uh, the past. But uh, you know, uh, I was invited by the Holocaust Memorial in Milan, Italy, to give a, a lecture on my book. And when you enter inside the memorial, you you discover a huge wall with the word indifference. Uh, written on it, ah. and uh, I think that it's it's important. But as uh, as I said uh, while uh, writing my book, uh, I wasn't trying to pass judgment. Uh, I I didn't want to take the side of the victims because I am Jew. I am Jew. I'm Jew. I'm Jewish, and I always asked myself, and you, what are you doing today? For those, for those who are suffering in your world today, and so, and and thinking that maybe in I don't know in in sixty years, I I can't be judged 
for my indifference of today. So that's why writing this book forced me to ask myself questions as a citizen and to take action. That's so um, wonderfully said and something that's not done enough, a kind of turning that reflective lens on ourselves to ask what we are doing now. And I do feel that in the book, that that need that Anne in the novel has to, to look at herself and the ways in which she was separated from her community and the the kind of Jewish Jewish heritage of her family, and the need to to reconnect. I, the great kind of counteraction to this kind of immortality are the stories that you tell of those who risk everything to do something fundamentally good. This happens in small ways and enormous ones. So Gabrielle's decision to sneak Miriam across Nazi um, road checks, for example. But one of the most profound for me is the story of Dr. Hotval, who is not Jewish, but whose actions to save Jews put her into a camp with Noemi and Jacques. Once there, she continues to risk her life by providing life-saving care to the victims of the camp's brutality. This must be a real historical figure. Could you tell us about her and talk about her place within the universe of the novel? Uh, yes, she's she's an amazing woman, and I don't know why she she's not uh, most well known in France because she's such a heroine. So Adelaide Ovan. She was a French doctor, and she was not Jewish, but she was um, Christian. And during the war, she was arrested uh, for uh, attempting to cross the demarcation line. If, if I well remember, it was because her mother was dead or she, she wanted to or was sick, and she had to go to Paris uh, to see to see her mother, and so uh, she didn't had she didn't have the paper to cross the demarcation line, and so uh, she was arrested, and she was in a, a prisoner camp, and one day she was appalled by the way Jews were being treated uh, in the in the in the camp. In the, in the jail. And a Nazi uh, told her, since, since you love Jews, you will suffer the same treatment as them. And so she was uh, then sent uh, to the PTV camp uh, as, a prison, as a prisoner. And uh, um, as I explained, uh, the PTV camp was a, a transit camp between uh, the French jails uh, and the, the death camps. And uh, in this uh, uh, transit camp, she, so she, she was a prisoner, but she continued to provide uh, medical care to people because, as I said, she was a doctor. And in this camp, she met Noémie, and Jacques. So Noemi and Jacques, the two characters of the postcard. And she she grew fond of Noemi and and she spoke about her in in her memoirs. And it's it's thanks to these memoirs that I was able to write the chapters about uh, Noemi's life in the PTV camp. And uh, Adelaide Oval tried to save them tried to save uh, Noemi and Jacques, but she didn't uh, succeed. And later, um, Adelaide Oval uh, was sent to Auschwitz, and she will survive. And uh, after the war, she will uh, write book, Medicine and Crimes Against Humanity. And um, I don't, as I said, I don't understand why why I didn't know her before writing my book, because and she 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 should be very famous. Yes, she should. 
I, I don't I don't understand why at school I didn't I didn't hear about her. And she gives these two uh, incredible gifts. The one is the work she does in the in the camp to to try and save those who are brutalized by the camp, and the other is that she brings Noemi's uh, own heroism in the camp, her own work uh, in that medical clinic, to light in a way that might have been lost. Um, but the fact that uh, Noemi uh, is. Uh present in, in the Adelaide Oval Memoirs was for me a, a miracle. Mm. It certainly feels that way when you read it. So uh, before I let you go, I, I would love it if you would recommend some books that you think are in conversation uh, with the postcard, but also from contemporary French literature in general that you find appealing. And then, um, Tina, I'd love to know some recently translated works that you admire. Um, for me, as uh, a dialogue, the book dialogues with um, the book of Daniel Mendelssohn, uh, The Lost a Search for Six of Six Million. Mm. And is this recent, Anne? Yes, yes. Daniel Mendelssohn, uh, sorry for uh, my accent, he's uh, an American writer. And, um, and this book, I don't know, uh, was maybe published less than 10 years ago. We we loved in France. We we loved that book. And were there any others that were a, a big influence on you? Oh yeah, of course, all the uh, the books of uh, the French writer uh, Patrick Modiano, the of of course the books of uh, Irene uh, Nemirovsky, ah. and um, maybe um, uh, I I would like to add a book that I read recently uh, in 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 France. It's called um, Les, Les Promesses de Marie de Lattre. It's a, a, a first novel, and uh, maybe uh, one, uh, one translator um, will um, read this book. And uh, for me, it's, uh, also, uh, it's a book uh, uh, from the third generation, like me, and I really love this book. Hmm. Maybe Tina, that's that one can go on your list for next translations. Well, I'm definitely noting that that title with interest. And and Tina, your your thoughts on some some texts that are in translation that you you might admire and want to uh, want to recommend. Um. Well, first of all, and I honestly don't mean to blow my own horn here. But a book that I translated in 2018 from French, uh, Negar Javari's Disoriental or Désoriental in French, I think has a lot in common actually with uh, the postcard. It's another story of another family story of, uh, you know, the importance of, 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 of passing down family history and heritage through difficult times. It's another story of refugees. It's another story of... Um, of yes, that's a beautiful. That's a beautiful book. Yeah, it's it is another one that I was just incredibly honored to translate. And I, when I first read the postcard, it did uh, remind me of of Disoriental in ways. So I would I would definitely say that if you enjoyed the postcard, I would I would definitely recommend Disoriental. Obviously in French, if at all possible. But there is an English translation available by me that is also out from Europa editions. Now, as, as far as if I could maybe um, mention, uh, cast a, just a little bit of a broader spotlight on work in translation that I think might appeal to to readers uh, with whom the postcard resonated. There have been a couple, there's one, a book that came out about six months ago from HarperCollins called Ashes in the Snow. Um, that's translated from the Italian. Uh, it's by Oriana Ramuno and Catherine Greger is the translator. Um, it's set at Auschwitz in Christmas 1943. And it's um, sort of a murder mystery happening unfolding actually there but obviously it, it, it it's much more than that and it has um you know a lot to do with people at the time who'd been 
unaware of what's really going on, kind of becoming aware and and the, the pure evil that that the final solution represented. So that's a, a one book I would definitely recommend. Uh, and then just one more, if if I could, I want to recommend this for for several reasons. It's um it's actually a, a translation from the German, but. But the original, the author's name is Yulia Rabinowicz. She's Russian-born, and f- her family moved to Vienna when she was young. And she's she has the same same family same, last name. She has the same family last name. Yes, Rabinowicz. It means the son of the rabbis. So oh, right. So a lot of people. <laughs> right. The, but the book itself, um, it's another story about a family that. Um, flees a war and seeks asylum in Europe, you know, and just the the difficulty of that and the stress of that. And so that's out from Anderson Press and uh, it's called Me In Between. Uh, Claire Story is the translator of that one. So um, yeah, those would be, be my two my two recommendations at the moment. Wonderful. Well, and, and I can't recommend enough that my listeners go and find The Postcard by Anne Berest and beautifully translated by Tina Kober. Uh, It is a affecting, sometimes sorrowful, uh, but always wonderfully um, written and imagined novel. And I want to thank you, Anne and Tina, for, for joining me. Thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. Yes, thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Anne Berest and Tina Cover for discussing Anne's extraordinary true novel, The Postcard. You can find links to purchase The Postcard and all of Anne and Tina's recommended books at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow. My next interview is with the author of one of my favorite novels of 2023, Loot by Tanya James. I can't recommend Loot enough, and I hope you'll catch our conversation. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.